the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week on the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 on AM 630 The Word, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about our faith, what we believe and why we believe it, uh, questions about anything going on in your life. We'll do the best that we can to answer your questions. 340-9585 is our number. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, 630-5757. You can email us your question by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of the KSLR mobile app. It is also free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, 340-9585. Now, we got a lot going on this week. I'm sure everybody in the world does this week as we draw near Christmas, but I'm going to keep reminding you, this is the week. Friday night is our kids' at Christmas play at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center. Um, 6.30 in the evening, the admission is free, and you will be blessed if you want to really do something with your family and um, really have something to talk about relative to Christmas, what it's about. Um, we'd love for you to come. Uh, you will be blessed, I promise you. Uh, it's an original play written by uh, one of our teachers here on staff. Um, all of the music is original, written by uh, one of our young men. And uh, you'll be blessed. It's just really great time. That's at the Judson High School Performing Arts Center this coming Friday evening at 6.30. And then on Sunday at 4 o'clock, I want to invite you to our annual Christmas dinner. It's at the Shirts Community Civic Center. It's going to start at 4 o'clock. There'll be lots and lots of people there, lots and lots of food there. Uh, It's just a great time to get together in fellowship, and you are invited. Don't worry about feeling uncomfortable. If you're there for about 30 seconds or a minute, uh, you will be made to feel welcome and more than comfortable. We'd love to have you join us. Please don't feel awkward. We'd just love to have you. I like uh, every year I get to meet some of the radio listeners uh, at the event. Paul and I will both be there along with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people. But it's really, really a neat time. So all of that is happening this week as we approach Christmas in the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I also hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did here. Uh, we were in Romans chapter 12, just one verse yesterday, chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to finally this coming Sunday get into uh, uh, a little bit more than just one verse in Romans 12. And um, had a great day yesterday. A lot of people made commitments of faith, uh, whether it was for the first time or to get right with God. It was about knowing the will of God. And uh, I highly recommend it, not because I did it, just because it's so timely. Uh, You want to give Jesus a birthday gift? Give him you. You can go to calvarysa.com and listen to the last two studies we did on Sunday mornings. 
um, I trust the Lord will speak to your heart. So a lot going on. I hope everything is well with you. 340-9585. Let's get to some questions. Remember, we like your phone calls. It makes the program better. Here is an anonymous question that says, I am a new believer and want some advice on whether or not I should keep my old friends. It's a wise question, Anonymous, but uh, it depends on who those old friends are. If they're old friends that you used to sin with, used to party with, or get in trouble with, well, of course not. Uh, Paul writes that bad company corrupts good character. Just remember that as a new believer, you're with Jesus. And because you're with Jesus, and because he's light, you can't walk in the darkness. Now, here's what I did when I got saved, and believe me, my life was a, a mess. But I still talked to my old friends. I still did some of the things that I used to do before I got saved. But the whole time I was talking to them about Jesus, and you know what? They didn't want me around for very long, so they made the decision for me really, really simple. You just have to be careful. You're a whole new person. You've got a whole new life in front of you. And what you want to do is... Get up every morning, commit that day to Jesus, and then you don't want to go places or do things where you wouldn't be comfortable with him being. It's that simple. Yeah, tell your friends what's happened to you. Tell them to watch the change in your life. Tell them that you met Jesus and now you're saved. And while their response probably isn't going to be all that joyful, you know, when I got saved, I thought everybody would be so happy. The one thing that I've been looking for, I finally found. Well, nobody was excited for me. Nobody except Paula. And when I started sharing Jesus, it was simple. They didn't want me around much anymore. Uh, and it pretty much meant that if I went to places that they were doing the kind of things that I did before I got saved, well, then Jesus couldn't go. I had a choice between my old friends and my new friend, Jesus, and I chose Jesus. So, Anonymous, just be careful. Be careful. Hebrews says that we're to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And because of that, if those old friends are a hindrance to you growing in the grace and knowledge of not only God, but of God's will for your life, then you got to throw them off. You can tell them you love them, you can pray for them. You just can't be who you used to be because you want your old friends to see Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you do that, then the decisions you have to make will be clear. Hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Here is another question from Wayne. I was waiting to see if I'd get a question on this one. He said, uh, Pastor Ron, have you commented on the Pope's declaration that the wording in the Lord's Prayer needs to be changed? Uh, I haven't commented, Wayne, on this program. Um, just haven't had the opportunity. It just happened, I think, Thursday or Friday of last week uh, when the news hit. But see, this is the reason that religion is so evil. You've got one man determining that what Jesus said wasn't good enough. Now, this is very important for us to understand. The head of a major world religion thinks he knows more than Jesus does. He said, no, it sounds too much like Jesus could lead us into temptation. That's because he doesn't have a clue about what the Bible says. He may be able to quote scripture, but he has no idea what it says or means. And I just can't imagine the arrogance of suggesting that Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, say. In other words, pray like this. And he gave us that model for prayer. And by the way, the Lord's Prayer is really not his prayer. That's in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. But the Lord's model for prayer is what Jesus gave. Now, of course, Catholics call it the Our Father. The problem with the Pope is he doesn't know the Father. So that's really, really important. Here's a man who's trying to change the very words of God incarnate. And Wayne, it is tragic. I look at him and I think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day looking religious, long flowing robes, 
opulent lifestyles. Pretending to be God's representatives. And all the while planning the murder of God. Unwilling to have their mind changed by facts. Unwilling to listen to anything Jesus had to say in his teaching. Unwilling to examine even the undeniable proof of an empty tomb. And yet they look like religious people. Well, so it goes for the Pope. And I would be terrified. Of course, he has no fear of God. I would be terrified to suggest that. Now, let's look just very quickly, Wayne, at what Jesus said in that. He said, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That was at the end of his model for prayer. And what he's really saying is, if we follow Jesus, if we let him lead us, then we're going to be walking in the opposite direction of temptation. That's not hard to figure out. We know throughout the scriptures that Jesus is light. There's no darkness in him at all. We know from the very beginning of scriptures that that Jesus was perfect and righteous and holy and fulfilled the law. So he couldn't be saying what the Pope seems to suggest he's saying. He's simply telling us, here's what you do. Remember in the Gospel of John, he said, My sheep know my voice, I call them by name, and they follow me. Too often we want Jesus to follow us. Jesus is saying, follow me, and wherever evil is, you and I will be walking together in the opposite direction. Believe me, that is a really, really good way to pray. So, Wayne, uh, that's my comment. I'll get some hate mail from it, but but that's okay. That's okay. That model for prayer, incidentally, is a great one. Obviously, it comes from the mouth of God himself. It's not supposed to be prayed repetitiously. It's sort of the outline of a prayer. When you begin that prayer, Our Father... The first thing you have to ask is, is he really my father? Do I know him? Am I saved? Because I can't address him as my father. If, in fact, I don't know Jesus Christ, if I'm not born again. Our Father, which art in heaven. You can thank God at that point in the prayer. If he's in heaven, that means his perspective isn't earthly. It means that He can see the end from the beginning. He can lead and guide our steps because he's formed them. It also means that he sits enthroned above the judgment. I always think of Psalm 29 when I prayed this part of the Lord's model for prayer. He sits enthroned above the judgment. It means if I'm sitting with him, I too then am above the judgment. And it just makes your heart so filled with joy. So the the Lord's model for prayer, again, not repetitiously, not without thinking, but we sort of fill in the gaps. And if you'll pray that prayer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I can promise you, Wayne, it will lead you into some of the most fruitful prayer times that you can possibly imagine. So I'm sorry for the Pope. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from our mobile app from Richard. He says, are deathbed confessions as valid or acceptable in order to be saved? Um, Richard, it depends on whether or not they're genuine or sincere. The thief on the cross, his death cross um, confession was as valid as it can be. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. My father who at 84 years of age uh, living a life completely against God my dad was a Missouri pulled up by pulled up by the bootstraps type of life he he was one who believed that there was a verse in the Bible that said God helps those who help themselves and he rejected Jesus even when Paul and I were getting ready to leave for Texas We wanted one opportunity to talk to him, and he thought it was the dumbest thing in the world for us to do. But he gave his heart to Jesus, 
only hours before he died. And I got to go talk to him the last day of his life, briefly. My dad disowned me because of my interracial marriage. He never said he was sorry. We were civil to one another toward the end of his life. But there was no hint he wanted anything to do with Jesus. But we were praying for him. So many people were praying for him. And one day he fell. Hit his head, was unconscious. A couple of days later, he's with Jesus. And all because a friend of mine, a pastor in Las Vegas, took the time and shared Jesus. And he repented of his sins and asked Jesus into his heart. I went the next day. My dad was unconscious. I just waited for a while. He woke up just for a moment, only a moment. He said, Ronnie, what are, you, what are you doing here? And I said, Dad, I came to make sure you know Jesus. Do you remember my pastor friend's name was Derek? Do you remember when Derek came by last night? He said, yeah, he's the one that told me about Jesus. I said, Dad, did you ask Jesus into your heart? Do you know what you did? And he said, yes, son. Last words I ever heard from him. So, Richard, deathbed confessions are valid. Now, some deathbed confessions, of course, jailhouse conversions are called sometimes, are not sincere, but that's between the person who makes the confession and God. But if somebody means it, if they really want to give their heart to Jesus, if they're really, truly sorry and repentant, they're welcome in heaven. It's an amazing thing. Richard, think about how good God is, that he would take somebody like my dad, whose whole life was lived contrary to God's plan, God's will, wanted nothing to do with God, wanted to be his own little G-God. But at least in my mind and heart, just for me, he waited for my dad. So yeah, they're valid and as long as people have breath, we ought to continue to tell them about Jesus. So never never grow tired of telling people the truth about Jesus Christ. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Richard, thanks for asking that question. That gives me a chance just to be grateful all over again for a gracious, patient, slow-to-anger God. Tommy says, what does it mean exactly to make Jesus the Lord of my life? Tommy, it means to put him in charge. Um, I think too often we have a tendency to look at Jesus as sort of an eternal life insurance policy. We say, yes, I, I'm sorry for my sins, Lord, forgive me and come into my heart. But then we live our lives our way. To, to make Jesus Lord of your life means that you surrender your will in favor of his will for you. Our last two Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel uh, begin with, um, brothers, I urge you, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of everything God's done for you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service, the King James says. It's your spiritual act of worship, the NIV says. You can also translate it, it's your sincere act of worship. And then he tells us to be not conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed. It's a Greek present tense, continuous tense. Continue to be transformed continually by continually renewing your mind. And then it says, this promise is for us. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's perfect, acceptable will really is. So, uh, Tommy, it just means that, that you no longer live for you, you live for Jesus. When you call him Lord, you're making him the boss. It means we get up in the morning and we check in, get our orders from headquarters. I always put it this way, what about me, Lord, and what about today? It means when I'm tempted, when you're tempted, Tommy, it means that instead of saying yes to temptation, you let the power that Jesus left in us 
Help you to say no. No to you and yes to him. You see, when Jesus comes into your heart and he's truly Lord of your life, he changes you. And I guess, tell me, the best way for you to know if Jesus really is the Lord of your life is to answer this question. Have you really changed since you made a profession of faith? Have you really changed? Do you think differently? Do you behave differently? Has the hope that Jesus has provided for us transformed you into a grateful man? That's what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life. And the only way that can happen, Tommy, is by the new birth. The old you has to die, not physically, but spiritually. The old sinful nature dies. Jesus comes into your heart, and you walk in the power of a new physical resurrected life on your way to heaven. And I call earth sort of pre-heaven training. We start the day we give our heart to Jesus trying to be more and more like him every day, falling more and more in love with him every day. Tell me if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do it. If you have done that, God bless you. Life gets rich and it gets full and pretty amazing. Not easy, that's for sure, but it makes it a pretty amazing, passionate life. Christmas time, Tommy, is a good time to do it. So if you haven't given your heart to Jesus, consider doing so. Here is a question from Eli. He says, do you believe Christ is physically present in the communion service? Uh, Eli, I'm not sure what you mean by the question. If you mean, do I believe that the cracker and the cup that we partake actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus, the answer is no. The communion service, the Eucharist, the Mass, whatever you want to call it in your religious tradition, is a memorial. Jesus said that we're to do these things in remembrance of him. When Jesus broke the bread, he was still in his body. He said, take and eat, this is my body. Obviously, he was speaking metaphorically. Now, there are religious traditions as you are no doubt aware, based on the question that you asked, there are religious traditions that believe that there's something that supernatural happens, that the minute you put the, the cracker, the wafer in your mouth, it becomes the body of Christ. He's physically present with you. Or you drink the cup, that the cup really becomes, whether it's real wine or grape juice, it really becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. But a clear reading of Scripture, if you throw away religious tradition, you could never come up with that definition. But it no, in no way lessens the import or even the impact of communion. We're to do it with grateful hearts. You know, there's another argument, Tommy, that, you know, Jesus is physically present in his church. The book of Revelation, we see him walking around the seven candlesticks, which are the seven churches, in the midst of them. And there are some of those very same religious traditions that say he's physically present, but that's also to miss the point. Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave his disciples, those who would be apostles, he said, it's good for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I'll send another. The Greek word is allos. It means of the same sort or substance, but different physically. I'll send another me to you, the promised Holy Spirit. So Christ is present in the church, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, Jesus is present in the person of the Holy Spirit, in communion. He's in us relationally. So that's the person of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to testify of him. So it's a misunderstanding 
to think that there's a physical presence of Jesus, like at the incarnation or at the wedding in Cana or any of the other places or crowds that he was in. Jesus was there physically. The woman with the issue of blood could fight her way through the crowd and touch the hem of his robe. So we can't do that, but that doesn't make him any less here. It's just not in physicality. And he's here in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we need to understand. One of the things, Eli, that we have to do is we have to be willing to sort of examine the Word of God for ourselves rather than just rely on religious traditions. We have to be willing and able to look at the Word of God and see what it says and understand what Jesus has done. You know, the, the Holy Spirit, we, we, we misunderstand His purpose here. He's no less God than Jesus. He's no less God than the Father. But you see, his mission in this dispensation of grace is to empower people to come to God. And the way he does it is by testifying of Jesus. Yesterday at our church services here at Calvary Chapel, all three services, we, had, we give an invitation. And it's not because I give some profound invitation. That's not it at all. It's something as simple as Jesus drawing people to him through the Holy Spirit. Well, the half hour got away from me. I didn't realize we were counting down. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. we got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Well, welcome back to the second half of the Monday program. We'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585. Here's a question from our email inbox from John. He says, do you think President Trump's timely announcement to declare the Jewish capital to be Jerusalem is related to the Jewish year of Jubilee since Jerusalem was liberated in the Six-Day War in 1967, 50 years ago? The year of Jubilee proclaimed liberty throughout the land, Leviticus 25.10. John, if there is a connection there, and I don't know, this is an interesting thought, and frankly, I hadn't thought about it at all. Well, I know that President Trump and anybody else involved in it is completely oblivious to anything. Uh, is this God's hand moving in the background? It is possible, uh, but there's no way to say with any um, definitive declaration for sure. Uh, all we can do is understand that we know we're in the last days. Um, it, 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 it certainly could be um, liberty throughout the land, but uh, if we are honest and we look at Jerusalem now, uh, there's no liberty there. Um, the reaction to the declaration of moving the ambassador's residence to uh, Jerusalem has been brutal and widely denounced. Um, we should have expected that uh, if this is, in fact, uh, a year of jubilee, then we've got uh, just a few days, a couple of weeks left in this year uh, to, to really have liberty proclaimed throughout the land. And that would only happen with Jesus coming back or at least the beginning of the Great Tribulation, uh, which would, of course, be preceded by Christians, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, being raptured and taken to heaven to be with Jesus uh, for our wedding banquet. Um, but, but probably this is just a 50-year coincidence, but I don't think was orchestrated by God. But it's interesting to think about, and I hadn't given it a thought, uh, hadn't made the connection that this was 50 years. So, John, I couldn't do any better than that, but pray that Jesus comes quickly. That's what we do every day. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here's an anonymous question. Um, it's an important one. The Bible says... We have to forgive, but God withholds forgiveness, so why can't we? Now, I may be presuming a whole bunch here, Anonymous, because that's all the information I have. Obviously, I don't know who you are. But I felt like the Spirit was sad when I read that. 
It's like, well, some people go to hell, so if there's people that have hurt me, I don't have to forgive them because God doesn't forgive them. But here's the difference. God doesn't withhold forgiveness from anyone. In fact, he offers forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was extending forgiveness to his murderers. So it's not fair to say God withholds forgiveness because he doesn't. He offers it to everyone. The fact that many and even most uh, don't accept God's forgiveness, that just makes things um, more difficult to understand. Everybody can be forgiven and yet people don't accept it. Why? Because they don't want to submit to God. They don't want to stop sinning. Now, that doesn't give you, Anonymous, the right to withhold forgiveness. Now, you can offer forgiveness to people. You can be free from unforgiveness and from bitterness. But the person who you offer forgiveness to has to want it for it to be of any value to them. So, I think sometimes, especially when people have done bad things to us, I think we have a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness doesn't mean what you did is okay. Everything's going to be fine now. Let's just move on. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is you need to repent of what you've done. I'm willing to forgive and start new with you. I offer forgiveness, and then the choice is upon the one that you offer the forgiveness to as to whether or not they're going to accept it. But remember to accept forgiveness, you have to acknowledge that you need it. I think too many of us don't. One other thing, Anonymous. If you refuse to offer forgiveness to people, you're so bound in your heart by the bitterness and hatred that you can't hear from God. You can't enjoy your walk with the Lord. You can't be free, and God wants you to be free. It's for freedom they've been set free. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. But in order to be truly free, we have to be unencumbered by bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And if you want your walk with Jesus to thrive, it begins with you acknowledging that holding on to unforgiveness is a sin. In the model for prayer that I was asked about earlier in the program, about the Pope changing the words. Well, one of the things Jesus said that we're to pray is, Father, forgive me as I've forgiven others. Now think about that for a moment. Can you say, Lord, forgive me just the way I forgive other people, knowing that God's going to forgive you completely? Or are you really saying, forgive me as I forgive others, even though I really don't forgive others, then you're saying, don't forgive me at all, Lord. So those are things that you have to really think about, Anonymous, and this is more than an important issue. This is an issue that you've got to come to grips with. Jesus died for your sins. He offered forgiveness to you. He loved you when you hated him, when you were his enemy. Now, if Jesus did that for you, how can we do less for the people that maybe now you consider your enemy? I think the Spirit would say to you, Anonymous, He wants you to be free. Free to love, free to hope, free to thrive in your relationship with God. You just can't do it on your terms. We have to come to Him on His terms. And because he's Lord of our life, that was the question at the end of the program, or in the first half. He's the one who dictates what those terms are. Is it hard to forgive somebody who's really, really hurt you? It is unbelievably difficult. Personally, that was one of the very first lessons I had to learn. There was one man in my life that I hated. One man who did everything he could to destroy me. As it turns out, what he did was what really started the clock ticking on me getting saved. And after I was saved, still hating this man, Jesus made it clear that I needed to forgive him. And I thought, that's not fair. He's the one who did bad things to me. I'm the victim here. 
And Jesus, in short order, said, the only victim here is me. I died for your sins. And he asked me to die to myself for his sake in relation to this other man. And I really wrestled with him. I really struggled with that. But you know, when you start praying for somebody that you really, really hate, somebody you don't want forgiven, when you start praying for that person, even if you have to do it through clenched teeth, God will change your heart. That's the power of prayer. So Anonymous, pray for the person that you're holding unforgiveness toward. And let God change you because he wants you to be free. Don't be trapped in unforgiveness and bitterness. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Um, Anonymous, one more thought just comes to mind. When I forgave that man, I realized that God had, in the process of me wrestling with him on that issue, God gave me the gift of forgiveness. And as I sit here today doing this radio show, I can honestly tell you there isn't one person in this world that I am unwilling to forgive or haven't forgiven, no matter what they've done. Not one person. And i got to tell you, that's a really, really great way to live. Thanks for the question. we got another anonymous caller on line one. You're on the air. Thanks for holding. Go ahead. Hi, Pastor Rob. I have a question about open marriage. And so if, if my wife left me in divorce and I didn't want it, and then I meet somebody else, and they've been divorced as well, and uh, their reasons for divorcing their spouse, considering they're a believer, right, foundation, like they're equally yoked, if they've divorced their spouse because they claim to have been emotionally abandoned, not a physical abandonment where they left, but they just completely withdrew from the marriage and they were just cohabiting, could I, is that uh, is there a possibility to remarry that person or would it fall into be remarrying somebody who didn't have biblical grounds for divorce? Yeah, Anonymous, I can only speak generally to this and I'll do the best that I can. Um, if, if, if the two of you were in this office, I'd be, I'd be asking some, some deeper questions. Uh, emotional abandonment. Um, the fact that a husband is a jerk or is insensitive or uncaring uh, that's not grounds for divorce for a Christian. If this woman is a Christian and she divorced him just because he was a, a jerk or because she was emotional, those are, are, are terms that our culture uses to justify um, not keeping your marriage vows. And if it's as simple and straightforward as that, I would probably say that that she's not uh, eligible for remarriage. Now, I, I want to keep in mind here that we, we live in a time where we enjoy this wonderful grace. And it's hard to know sometimes where to draw the lines. But at the very least, if I was doing the pre-marriage counseling, if she convinced me that she was genuinely repentant for what she'd done, if she could convince me that, that, that she's asked for his forgiveness, uh, even if he was the jerk, um, I can... I can imagine we could get to a place where I could say, um, God's grace covers your sins. You're genuinely repentant. Today we start new, and and maybe there's a possibility of of um, her remarrying. But uh, I would need to know a lot more about her, about the situation, and about your relationship as well. So. Um, and that, that's that's going to be one that needs to be really, really bathed in prayer. Uh, Anonymous, um, this is this is really something you need to talk to your pastor about. Um, ask for help. That's what the church is for. And in a situation like this, there's just a whole lot more in terms of details that we really, really need. 
So sorry, I couldn't help any more than that. But but talk to your pastor. It's really important, especially if you care for this this woman. Um, again, you're divorced and she's divorced. That doesn't mean you're committed to stay single for the rest of your life. It's just something that really needs to be um, prayerfully considered. Can I say one other thing? And this is not just to you, Anonymous, but to everyone else. You know, one of the things that we have to understand about the marriage covenant and, and the fact that God holds it uh, in, in such sacred esteem, um, we can't just go from one marriage to another and, and hope that things are going to work out. We, we've got to deal with the sin. Second Kings chapter 6 is a, a passage, the first six verses, a passage that I use often for people in situations like this. You know, at some point, you lost your fellowship, not just with one another, but with God. When divorces happen and, 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 and you said you were physically abandoned, um, you, you were free to divorce, if that's the case. You were left. Um, um, but, but still, we, we've got to deal with the issues that cause the problems. In Second Kings chapter 6, it's the story of the miracle of the floating axe head. There was a young prophecy student and that student was um, building something they were building a bigger place so they, the school could meet and he lost an axe head in the water it flew off uh, axe heads were very valuable uh, it was a borrowed axe head so what he was saying when he called for Elisha he was saying uh, uh, it's borrowed my life is, is I'm going to be in, in debt to this man for the rest of my life and Elisha said, where did you drop it? Now, that sounds obvious to us, but Elisha was pointing to the exact place. You show me exactly where you dropped it. And he could point to that place. They threw the piece of wood in and the axe had floated. Well, the, the application for us is when we mess up a marriage, when we violate our marriage covenant, or in your case, you've been violated, we still need to go back to the Lord and say, where did we lose it? And we need to start right there, especially anonymous if there's going to be a, a future marriage. Uh, you've got to go into that new marriage unencumbered, without any baggage. And in the scenario you presented, this woman needs to do the same thing. She can't play the victim here. Well, I was emotionally abandoned. I was verbally abused. Those are just f phrases. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was emotionally abused. He stayed where his father had him. He begged for the cup of the, the cross to pass from him. And his father said, no. If this woman is going to enjoy a marriage in her future, she needs to go back to that place where she accepts responsibility for bailing and for any part that she might have had in the marriage and how it turned out. Again, I'm not putting blame on her. Sometimes women are married to jerks. You know who was married to a jerk? Paula was married to a jerk. But she hung in there because God asked her to. And I got saved. So those are the things that need to be discussed. Those are the things that need to be considered. So please, uh, the two of you, if, if, if there's hope for this relationship, the two of you, go to your pastor and talk to him about it. That's how important it is. Thank you for the call, and uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't be more specific than that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patricia. She says, Pastor Ron, does God still raise the dead today? Um, spiritually, of course, now you know that, Patricia. Um, I was raised from the dead uh, in February of 1991, uh, and I have a whole new life. But I, I think you're talking about um, somebody's died, and you've got people claim to raise people from the dead. Uh, the answer is no, and and the answer is no. Now God still does miracles; He heals people, uh, just not the way these crazy charismatic churches claim that He does. Um, but to raise somebody from the dead, now I want you to think about this for a moment. If that were happened, if it were really true, wouldn't that be front page news all over the world? Man in a coffin raised from the dead. That wouldn't be something 
that just we just kind of passed over. It would be news all over the world. So these kinds of miracles are conspicuous by their absence. And when somebody says, well, I saw it happen in a church, and there are pastors and people in their churches who claim they saw somebody raised from the dead, most of that is just a stage show. If somebody were really raised from the dead, I'll just use my church as an example. If somebody died, we're doing a funeral, and somebody, God said, Ron, raise him from the dead. Uh, And if they raised from the dead, I would make sure everybody on this planet heard about it. Now, not to draw attention to me, but to draw attention to Jesus, the one who raised him from the dead. That's just not something that happens. You know, a a pretty famous guy uh, died not too long ago, and uh, his wife was holding out hope. Since Jesus raises people from the dead, she comes from a rather charismatic tradition. Um, she, she, She really set herself up uh, to believe that until that casket went down in the ground, she expected her husband to come out of the casket. Four days, in her case, and and she knew there was no hope, she said, when he was lowered into the ground and the ground was filled up, the hole was covered up. That's not healthy. When somebody dies, they die, they go to be with Jesus where they really live. So, Patricia, the answer, the way at least I think you're thinking, is no, God doesn't raise the dead like that. He does far greater things by raising those of us who are spiritually dead, and he raises us to life. 340-9585. Jimmy called to say hello. Jimmy, thanks for calling and thinking about us. We've got five minutes left in the program. Boy, today's program is going really, really fast. Here is a question from Alex. Do you know how the Apostle Paul died? Um, uh, Alex, we don't have um, specific evidence. Um, uh, Eusebius, the the Christian historian, um, said that he, uh, and these are the earliest writings that we have, said that he was called to testify before Nero and was um, executed by by having his head uh, removed. Um, and that's been what church history, the traditions of the church have passed down. But there's no specific evidence, either biblically or or, or uh, secular evidence, dynamic evidence, uh, only a traditions that's been passed down. Now, we know from Second Timothy that Paul knew that his time was short, uh, that it was time for him to go and be with Jesus. Uh, we also know that the way that most um, uh, religious people were executed was by beheading. So the the stories, the traditions, um, are validated by the, the time that Paul lived. But uh, he would have testified before Caesar Nero, who was insane and almost certainly possessed by the devil. Uh, and his... Um, his head was removed. So we're pretty sure that's how he died, but um, there's just no biblical evidence or nothing that we can point to to support uh, that that was for sure uh, the method of death. Here is a question from Ronald. Now, this is another one that makes me sad. Ronald says, My uncle says that Christianity is a white man's religion. What should I say to him? Uh, I would introduce him to Jesus. Um... He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know, nor does he believe in the Bible. Um, I've heard this same thing uh, most often, at least in my experience, from African Americans who who uh, have always seen the picture of Jesus as blue-eyed and light brown hair. Uh, Jesus was a Jew, a hardcore Jew. And he looked like all of the other Jews in Palestine at the time he lived. He died for the sins of the world. That means he's a white man's Jesus. He's a black man's Jesus. He's God to the terrorists. He's God to everyone who's ever lived. And your uncle is 
been sort of roped in by the hatred and the prejudice in the world that we live in. And I would just pray for him, tell him he needs to meet Jesus before he makes any decisions. Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And there are churches in this country of all flavors. He could come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, Ronald, and he would see lots and lots of black people, lots and lots of Hispanics, lots and lots of Asians, and lots and lots of white people. And we all know he's God. The other thing I'd say to him, and maybe this is just for you, Ronald, Jesus has nothing to do with religion at all. Christianity is a relationship with a real person who lived, who died, and who didn't stay dead. And if your uncle is honest enough to do the investigation, to check out the facts, then you'll come to the same conclusion that you have. One book I can recommend for you is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Challenge your uncle to read it examine the facts, and come to his own conclusion. Don't believe the nonsense that he's reading online. Instead, tell him he needs to find out for himself because the stakes are so high. Eternity in torment is in his future unless he believes. Thank you, Ronald. Hey, thanks today for tuning in. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. We have tonight our men's and women's and youth Bible studies uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, make risotto the ladies. 7 o'clock at Calvary Chapel. God bless you. See you tomorrow at 4. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.